Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrans. New Davis-Bacon rules, higher pay, tougher enforcement, GOP, not happy. Today on the show, the latest from the Teamsters in Minnesota, and we'll check in with the president of the American Library Association. Welcome to the Monday, August 14th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with the Teamsters Local 320 in the state of Minnesota, TeamstersLocal320.org. Mr. Brian Aldes will be joining us. He serves as Secretary Treasurer of Local 320, and they're uh, happy campers because Minnesota's assistant public defenders and support staff, all represented by his local, have recently ratified a historic collective bargaining agreement with Minnesota's Board of Public Defense. The assistant public defenders ratified their agreement by 96%, and public defense support staff ratified their agreement by 98%. Brian is quoted as saying, the agreements for attorneys and support staff are truly historic with life-changing salary increases that will provide stability for an agency that has suffered chronic underfunding by the state legislature. So once they worked with the lawmakers on boosting the pay, it finally found its way, the money that is, to the public defenders and their support staff. And you have to understand something, too. Lawyers can make a whole lot of money, let's be honest here. But if you are working in the public sector, in this case, public defenders, that's not the case. Not the case. There's some uh, municipalities that are paying public defenders $45,000, $50,000 a year where some lawyers could be making 10 times that amount of money. Brian's going to talk about working with the legislature and talk about organizing in general on behalf of the Teamsters. Emily Drabinsky will be joining us later in the show, and she serves as president of the American Library Association. She's had that role all this year, and that will continue through next year. She works out of the Graduate Center City Library in New York and publishes and presents widely on topics related to organization, information literacy, critical perspectives in librarianship. And uh, what she's going to talk about, the challenges for libraries. The American Library Association released some new data documenting 1,269 demands to censor library books and resources. Now, this was for last year, 2022. It's the highest number of attempted book bans since the Library Association began compiling data about censorship in libraries, and that started about 20 years ago. The number of reported book challenges last year nearly doubles the challenges of 2021. In 2021, it was 729. A record of 2,571 unique titles 
were targeted for censorship. Now, that is a 38% increase from the numbers in 2021. And of those titles, a vast majority, most of them written by or about members of the LGBTQ community and people of color. Of the reported book challenges, 58% targeted books and materials in school libraries, classroom libraries, or school curricula. So we're going to map this all out. And there's some states that are censoring more than others. Others will cover that. And also the Library Association has put together a action toolkit on how communities can fight back against censorship. And we'll talk to Emily about that as well as her second guest right here on America's Workforce. Unions in the news, making news, labor update brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. We have one story to report on, and this is pretty significant. The nation's building trades unions are cheering new regulations for the almost century-old Davis-Bacon Act. Regulations that will mean higher pay for construction workers, especially in rural areas, and more workers covered and tougher Labor Department enforcement against shady construction contractors. All I can say, it's about time. The rules were announced last week, setting prevailing wages for federally funded construction projects, a universe of construction that is expanding greatly after the approval of of the five-year, $1.2 trillion infrastructure law and throw in the CHIPS Act and also the Inflation Reduction Act. The key change is to undo Republican-engineered prevailing wage rates, which reduce both how many construction workers Davis-Bacon would cover and the levels of prevailing wages set in each specific geographic area. The new rules to take effect after a mandatory comment period. So it's not going to happen right away. The new rules return to the definition of prevailing wage used from 1935 to 1983 to ensure prevailing wages reflect actual wages paid to workers in the local community. And those rates would be periodically updated. The top change is... If at least 30% of a geographic area's workers in a construction craft earn a particular wage, it would become the prevailing wage for workers in that craft on all federally funded construction. Now, let me tell you, mention that that time period, 1935 to 1983. That's when Ronald Reagan was in office. He changed things under the Reagan era rules. The prevailing wage was the wage paid to at least 50% of all workers. If no rate covered more than half the workers, the prevailing wage was the weighted average of all wage rates for all construction workers in that craft in that area. In practical terms, that meant that non-union, low-ball contractors' wage rates would drag down everybody's wages. Now, with 30%, the 30% rule that Biden put in place, that changes everything. It would also expand coverage. The biggest expansion incorporates rural counties, where contractors typically pay less 
with nearby metro area prevailing wage rates as long as the plurality of covered workers toil in the metro areas. Thus, construction workers in rural counties adjoining metro Chicago would have the same prevailing wage rates as those in metro Chicago, which means the rural workers' wages would rise, whether they're building a highway, extending a commuter rail line, or installing broadband. In a further explanation, workers on federally funded construction projects would stretch over more than one geographic area, like an interstate highway, and they'd all be paid at the highest prevailing wage rates for their crafts. Here's another example. If workers are rebuilding I-70 west of Columbus to Springfield, Ohio, the prevailing wage would be the same all along the project. That's not the case now. This has caught the attention. You know the Labor's International worked with the Biden administration on this. Brent Booker, who we featured on the show a couple weeks ago, he's the general president of Labor's International, presenting sponsor of America's Workforce. He said the Biden administration's Final rule to update Davis-Bacon is landmark, is landmark and historic and will protect the wages of millions of workers. It strengthens federal prevailing wage regulations and restores the law to its original intent after it's been watered down over the last 40 plus years. Sean McGarvey. President of the North American Building Trade said this ruling is a win for all construction workers, both union and non-union, for good and fair contractors and for America's taxpayers, including a mandate to pay Davis-Bacon wages on broadband installation, which would employ tens of thousands of communication workers. Well, that drew the union support for the CHIPS Act as well as the bipartisan infrastructure law. We mentioned this on the show last week, several times on the show. $65 $65 billion will go to a broadband, and we're hoping that most of our communication workers will get that money. That's all being worked out as we speak. Well, this is all good news. I mean, think about this. They're reversing what happened, what was watered down 40, 50 years ago. But as might be expected, Representative Virginia Fox, Republican out of North Carolina, who does not like unions, who chairs the House Education and Workforce Committee, said that this is nothing but pork to big labor. (laughs) By rescinding a key element in the 1982 reform that prohibited cross-consideration of metropolitan and rural wages, the DOL, Department of Labor, ensures any wage calculation will overcount inflated urban wages as prevailing in smaller rural areas. The Republican senators also objected to the rewarding of whistleblowers who expose cut-rate contractors. And they went on to say by attempting to impose via executive rulemaking remedial make-whole relief for whistleblowers despite lacking express statutory authority to do so, the Department of Labor violates separation of powers principles. So you knew they're not going to take this. Lightly, And again, there is a mandatory comment period, but it's certainly good news, not just for union workers, but for non-union workers as well. How many times I say this on the show? Unions lift all boats, and this 
is just another example of that. All right, quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Teamsters Local 320 in the state of Minnesota. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland at 216-881-1802. Call Music Talent of Cleveland as your dependable source for professional musicians in Northeast Ohio. Union musicians add harmony to weddings, elegance to parties, and uplifting music for all events. Music Talent of Cleveland contracts solo and ensemble musicians as well as bands and orchestras for single engagements. So hire union musicians. Call Music Talent of Cleveland today. 216-881-1802. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SPS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. In fact, we'll be checking in with the president of the OFT. That would be Melissa Cropper tomorrow. She also serves as secretary-treasurer of the Ohio AFL-CIO. I'm sure one of the things she'll be talking about is the defeat of Issue 1 at the polls, which was last Tuesday by a margin of 57%. Pretty significant victory there. Right now, let's go to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joining us on our live line is Brian Aldes. Brian is secretary-treasurer of Teamsters Local 320. Website, real simple, Teamsters Local 320. Dot O-R-G. Brian has been a member of 320 going back to uh, 1989, and uh, he's here to talk about organizing and what they're able to accomplish, especially working with the legislature in the state of Minnesota. Minnesota, more union-friendly than a lot of states in the United States of America. Brian, welcome to the show. How are we doing today in uh, Minneapolis, brother? Well, we're we're doing great. Thank you uh, for having me on. I look forward to uh, talking with everybody uh, today. So, talk to me about your, your. So, you cover all of Minnesota. How many um, how many employees? And is it all public sector? Can you explain that part? 
Yeah, uh, Teamsters Local 320 uh, represents uh, strictly public employees across the state of Minnesota. We represent about 11,000 public employees uh, across the entire state, and we have members in all 87 counties. Uh, we represent uh, public employees that work for cities, counties, school districts, Minnesota State University, University of Minnesota, uh, state court administration, and of course, what we're here to talk about today as well, uh, the State Board of Public Defense. That's right. I see you uh, recently ratified a pretty good contract. We'll get into that in a little bit. But that number, that 11,000, has that been pretty yeah. constant, up or down, or what? Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, you know, it's gone up and down a little bit, uh, you know, obviously during the, during the pandemic. Our, uh, our rosters shrunk a little bit as uh, people migrated away from the workforce. Um, you know, employers uh, reduced the number of employees they had. And then, of course, uh, you know, national right to work in the public sector. Um, overturning the Abood decision was a big deal as well. But, uh, we, you know, we work very hard at the local union, uh, organizing, uh, you know, giving new, new, uh, new employees every opportunity and, uh, that, that we have uh, to uh, ask them to join the union as well. It's interesting you brought that up. That was the Janus decision of 2018, just over uh, five years ago. And it basically amounted to this. You could be in the union and not pay the dues. How, how did that affect 320 when that happened? Well, we, uh, you know, we, we knew uh, the Abood decision would be over turned at at some point just by the mere makeup of the Supreme Court and uh, and uh, what we had to look forward to in terms of Supreme Court appointees uh, going forward under the, uh, you know, uh, Trump administration. But, uh, you know, it, it hurt. It definitely hurt. Uh, you naturally you do lose a handful of members, but we prepared for it. Uh, we uh, we put together. Uh, pretty big organizing drives beginning back in, in 2014 and at the time speak, doing a lot of educating uh, and communicating with our, our members and at that time, obviously, the fair share folks. And we were able to drive up our membership uh, and uh, throughout, uh, over the course of the last five years anyway, since 2018, we've, we've done a pretty darn good job of maintaining the membership. You know, our members, they're, they're smart people and uh, they understand and understood what the uh, what the intent was in overturning Abood with the Janus decision, and you know people want to maintain their voice in the workplace. Uh, yeah, they want, a, they want a voice in terms of what their compensation, in terms of conditions of employment, look like too. It's funny too because the Teamsters have been involved in some of the uh, the pushbacks on this. We talked extensively about the Glacier decision which came out in June regarding the right to strike. And that involved uh, one of your locals out in uh, Washington state. But uh, yeah, elections matter, you know, judges matter. It's so important that you get the right people in office. And I guess in your legislature, you're doing that. Let's talk about the, uh, the assistant public defenders and their support staff, because, and I know this, I work in the municipal court system in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was mentioning this at the top of the show. You, you know, when you are working in the public, there's some people that think, oh, you're making a lot of money. Granted, the benefits are, are pretty good. You know, some states are better than others. 
But uh, when it comes to lawyers, I mean, lawyers can make, if they want to, make a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money. Sure. Public defenders are not in that category. Can you talk to yeah. me about, well, let's talk about what they were making and, and what they're what they're making now as a result of Teamsters Local 320. Go ahead. Oh, man. Uh, <clears throat> you're, you're right. Uh, you know, uh, public defenders historically have been under undervalued uh, in terms of uh, their their compensation to their peers on the other side of the courtroom you know prosecutors county attorneys city attorneys um, you know and and obviously it's difficult to compare them salary wise to those in the private sectors uh, as well but uh, it's actually how I came aboard to work for the local union there was an interest in um, the third judicial district here in Minnesota uh, the public defenders wanted to organize. So that's how I came to aboard to the local union. I started out as an organizer. And uh, back in 1999, uh, we organized the State Board of Public Defense. About 470 lawyers and uh, a little over 200 support staff, investigators, paralegals, dispositional advisors, and legal office assistants. And oh my, uh, undervalued isn't isn't the word. Um, we had a lot of work to do. Uh, they didn't make a lot of money at the time. A lawyer coming out of law school to go to work for the Board of Public Defense was making just over thirty thousand a year, uh, and the support staff uh, considerably less than that. Mm-hmm. So we uh, and we had a lot of a lot of organizing to do after the representation election. Um, You know, there wasn't a lot of of sympathy for public defenders um, and the communities that they serve. And that was, that was part of the problem as well. You know, people didn't want to invest in the underserved communities. So a lot of organizing and in particular, a lot of political organizing, you know, we had a, we had an employer uh, that really never pursued uh, the budgets that they needed uh, to provide parity and compensation to people that work for the State Board of Public Defense, to their counterparts in uh, city and county uh, law firms, prosecutor offices. And, uh, oh, probably about uh, six years ago, uh, we really began organizing for a credible strike threat uh, to put pressure on the employer and put pressure on our, our legislators. And we were very fortunate here in Minnesota through uh, political activity and political organizing uh, to have a democratically controlled uh, House and Senate governors. Uh, and we were able to also build uh, some political relationships with as well, key legislators uh, particularly in our House of Representatives, um, we built a really strong relationship with the chair of the Judiciary Committee in the House, Representative Jamie Becker Finn, uh, who works for a public who worked for a public law firm, uh, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, and uh, you know ultimately uh, what she did is held the employer accountable for requesting a budget that they needed to run their law firm, and not just you know, not just uh, better wages and comparable compensation, uh, but also a budget that would allow them to properly staff the agency 
caseloads were extremely high. Uh, people that work for the Board of Public Defense uh, were extremely uh, overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, together in our partnership with the le- uh, key legislators, we were able to uh, secure a budget that it, uh, increased the Board of Public Defense's funding by nearly 50%. Wow. Uh, and what really pushed it over the edge was a couple of years ago, uh, we actually took a strike authorization vote. And, you know, both bargaining units uh, consisting of roughly 700 uh, people that are employed by the Board of Public Defense voted to authorize a strike. Uh, throughout the course of negotiations, we had uh, filed our intent to strike. And uh, that's what uh, that's what pushed it over the edge. And then we got a, an appropriate budget. And now uh, public defenders in Minnesota are making between roughly 90, you know, coming out of law school, making roughly 90000 uh, all the way up to $158,500 a year. There you go. And they should for the amount of work that they do. What about the what about the caseload? Has that uh, has that lowered a little bit for them, or is it still pretty this pretty much the same? Well, you know, uh, people left the agency in droves, and yeah. uh, the caseloads are still high. Uh, those new wages, as you as you mentioned, it's a recently ratified agreements. Uh, the wages. Uh, will go into effect August 30th uh, here at the end of the month. And now they're going to be able to hire. Um, I'm guessing now that, uh, you know, they're, they, they may be the second highest paid public defender's office in the entire country. And wow. uh, now they're going to be able to hire. And, uh, you know, what we hope is that they're able to get that caseload relief and they're able to bring people aboard. And we, as part of our agreement, uh, that is an issue that uh, both parties recognize that they have to address. And uh, we will start evaluating that beginning in January and we'll begin a meet and confer process with the employer to see what the workloads like, the caseloads are like, and uh, start looking at, uh, you know, identifying any other issues that we have uh, with caseloads and uh, workloads. And, uh, put some other pieces in place to ensure that uh, they're able to cover those caseloads and that they're reasonable and they meet the national standards. Brian, you brought up uh, two subjects I want to get into a little bit more. There's organizing. We know what what that's all about with with workers Mm -hmm. making sure they join the... And then there's political organizing, and that's exactly what you did to make this happen. Brian Aldi's joining us in our live line today, Secretary-Treasurer of Teamster Local 320. Teamsterslocal320.org is their website. We'll continue with Brian later in the show. We're going to check in with the president of the American Library Association. That would be Emily Drabinsky. Talk about the current state of book challenges and censorship in the United States, which is pretty much off the charts right now. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. 
The men and women of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Layuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Layuna at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. This segment of America's workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the U.S., US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota right now. Joining us on our live line today, Brian Aldis. He's Secretary-Treasurer of Teamsters Local 320. They have about... 11,000 public employees in the state. we got state and city, 87 counties, big territory there. We're talking about uh, a recent uh, agreement, uh, ratification too, I might add, with Minnesota Assistant Public Defenders and Support Staff represented by uh, Local 320. This was a tough battle because public defenders, and it's not just in Minnesota, many parts of the country, they're making measly wages, and it's hard to keep people on staff and, and the importance of a public defender. I want to read a comment here, Brian, and this is in the Teamsters uh, press release from Grant Sanders. Grant is a uh, assistant public defender mm-hmm. in the third judicial district. Grant said yep. public defense is a constitutional service. Keep that in mind. It's a constitutional service provided yep. to vulnerable citizens under the Sixth Amendment. It's long past due for these vital investments from the state of Minnesota. And this raise that we're talking about for public defenders only happened because of organizing. Not not typical organizing of membership, but political organizing, making sure lawmakers understand the problem so they can allocate money to fix the problem. Brian, I want you to walk me through that. I, I know <laughs> you you know organizing is difficult, 
political organizing, that's a different level there. Can you uh, can you speak to that for our listeners? Because I'm sure there's other uh, states. We have we have a broad audience. We're heard, we're heard in 49 out of 50 states. We're we're still working on number 50. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of states that are wondering what the heck did they do in the state of Minnesota? Can you explain that part, Brian? Yeah. Uh, well, first, uh, you, you definitely have a great coverage area. Uh, you know, we uh, you know we started quite a few years ago. What we realized is that we uh, we had to educate the public and our local legislators. Oh, what does a public defender do? What does a dispositional advisor do? A paralegal, um, an appellate lawyer that works for the public defender's office, investigators, all of them. You know, people in general don't always know what public employees do, uh, nor do they necessarily understand uh, what the communities are that they serve, what the, what their value is. Um, so we had a lot of educating to do. Uh, we spent considerable time not just uh, educating uh, politicians, uh, but the public as well. Uh, politicians need uh, pressure put on them from their constituents. We held uh, public panel discussions um, that were virtual and people across the entire state could participate in uh, and, and hear all about what they do. Uh, about 13 years ago, we organized uh, Local 320's annual lobby day on the Hill sometimes bringing as many as 130 uh, teamsters to the Capitol to talk to legislators about the work that they do. Uh, We got involved in um, town hall meetings. Uh, We got involved in, uh, you know, working with uh, legislators, people running for office, being out there knocking on doors, phone banking for them, and, you know, really letting them understand, too, the public and local politicians uh, that this is a this is a constitutional right. Our underserved and underprivileged communities uh, have a right to uh, equal representation, just as if you were to go out and hire a private lawyer. And uh, that that really rang a bell with people on both sides of the political aisle. And that really helped us uh, push this uh, push this over the top. Representative uh, Jamie Becker Finn, as I mentioned in the in the earlier uh, session, uh, was a key legislator to uh, build a relationship with, and so we were able to hold the uh, employer accountable. As as we know, uh, you know, employers, you know, they're they're not the best advocates for their employees. So you know, we had to find a way to hold them accountable and building those relationships at the Capitol. Uh, was a was a way to do it and put a lot of pressure on them. Um, talk about uh, constitutional rights, uh, educate people about the communities that they uh, that they serve, and uh, we were able to uh, assist the employer in securing that budget. And you um, increased the budget by nearly fifty percent. That that's pretty pretty significant. Now, did you ask for more money? On that, I mean, the 50% is a good number. Uh, how did that work out for you? So the, um, the annual budget at the time, I think, of about $111 million. And, 
you know, we were able to, uh, we were able to secure an allocation of roughly 97, about 97 or 95 million. Um, the original ask was 115 million. Uh, so, uh, we didn't, we, you know, we weren't able to, to capture all of it, but we were able to capture the majority of it. And we were able to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement, uh, that provided parity with the higher paid, uh, county attorney offices in in Minnesota and they're still going to be able to uh to uh to hire as well and start addressing the workload but you know our work isn't over and we're going to have to continue to uh pursue uh larger budgets so that they can they can uh hire more workers and and they can uh continue to pay public defenders and their support staff across the state of Minnesota um, on an annual basis and provide pay increases going into the future so we don't fall into this same uh, black hole that we were in before. Yeah, sure. And, and think about the inflation factor here in the last couple of years. Now, Absolutely. Um, this uh, this uh, contract I see for the defenders was, uh, was approved by 96% public support staff, yep. 98%. What, what kind of contract are we talking about? How many years are we looking at right now? So uh, the uh, the the as state employees, um, you know, you you bargain on the uh, on a biennium basis. So they're two year contracts. Okay, all right, all right. Well, congratulations to you, Brian. We're speaking with uh, Brian Aldi, Secretary Treasurer of Teamsters Local three twenty. Uh, one more question here before you go, uh, and usually this is the case, national leadership, and Teamsters have a fireball there as <laughs> general president and Sean O'Brien. It's a, I was reading over that uh, that uh, UPS contract, and it's pretty darn good. There's a few that are upset with it. I mean, that's all. You're not going to get 100%, let's be honest, and that should be no. wrapping up here with a ratification uh, in the next week or so. But did you get some uh, coaching from uh, from national on this whole thing? <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked that. That's a piece that I forgot. We couldn't have done it without the support of our international union. Um, we, uh, we we worked with our international union over the course of the last few years to, you know, assist us in building up that credible uh, strike threat as well as, you know, for, uh, you know, our strategic initiatives and our communications as well and working with the media and engaging in um, – you know, public relations firms for messaging and things like that. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're fortunate to belong to uh, a union that's roughly 1.4 million people strong and uh, to have the resources like that uh, available to us. You know, local unions have a tough job and uh, you need to, you need to draw on the resources that you have outside your own offices to put the, put the right pressure on the employers and, um, pool the resources together collective bargaining it's all about pooling resources mm-hmm. it's good to have that 1.4 million behind your back sounds real good yeah. <laughs> i'll take that anytime all right brother well, great good job leadership to- matters you got it you got it 
Good leadership certainly matters, no doubt about that. Brian Aldi's joining us on our live line today, Secretary Treasurer of Teamsters Local 320. Do check out their website, Teamsters, that's plural, local320.org. Stay in touch with us. There's always a fight brewing, always a fight brewing. So remember this, Brian, this is your show too. This is a worker show, and we want all unions to be engaged in America's workforce, okay? So stay in touch, all right, brother? Hey, you take care, brother. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Emily Drabinsky will be joining us. She heads the American Library Association. We'll talk about all the censorship and book banning going on in the United States of America. Back in a few. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBalladSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at IFPTE.org. Buildings, bridges, skyscrapers, and more. Structures that are the face of our cities and towns were built by members of the Iron Workers Union. That's why it's important that our workforce of over 130,000 iron workers continues to be the safest and best trained in the field. With 154 training centers, we invest over $90 million annually in safety and training. We're growing the next generation of union iron workers. There are so many reasons to put your trust in our iron workers and their employers. Learn more about us at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Hi, this is Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and I am a huge fan of Flash and America's Workforce radio and podcast. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more on that organization at ulagency.org. Let's go to New York City right now. Joining us on our live line is Emily Drabinsky who is president of the American Library Association. She's here to talk about the book banning and censorship that's been going on in America in the past couple of years. There's always some of that going on, but it's off the charts right now. Emily, welcome to uh, America's Workforce. Before we get into that, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about your background, your association with the American Library Association, what it's all about, what you do. Go ahead. Let's pick it up right there. 
Sure. I'm a librarian and have been for more than 20 years and a member of the American Library Association for about that long. Uh, I'm involved with the organization uh, as a volunteer and a member leader and was elected president last year. And I'll serve a term uh, this year. I'm about six weeks into it and working hard on behalf of library workers across the country trying to raise awareness and about the issues that library workers are facing every day on the job. Yeah, you uh, you have entered in a very difficult time in America, no doubt I about sure that. Have. Uh, let me ask you now, do all libraries belong to the American Library Association? Does it work that way? No, it is a member organization and you can join, right? But it isn't mandatory. We aren't a, a governing body of any kind. We're a, an affiliation of members who uh, come together to generate solutions to the problems facing American libraries. Uh, some libraries are organizational institutional members, but the vast majority of us are uh, working librarians who want to be a part of an association that advances access and equity uh, for all. Yeah, we've done a couple of shows with uh, some unions that are organizing at libraries. We did that during uh, National Library Week, which was back in April. So we're seeing a lot of that going on, and a lot of that's happening because of what's happening at libraries. And the pandemic, of course, changed everything, too. Uh, but let, let's talk about the, the book banning and the censorship that's going on. And I, I read earlier in the show some of the data, the numbers here, which uh, – is the highest since you started compiling data on censorship in libraries. It's going back 20 years ago. So um, what's going on here, in, in your opinion? Is, is it like local school boards that are being really vocal? Can you explain the dynamics of what we're dealing with right now? I think it's really important first to note that this is a, a sort of movement being led by a small but very loud minority of people who want to restrict access to information about black life and experience, about queer life and experience, and are targeting um, materials based on those identities. These are uh, organized efforts to pull books off the shelves that give access to the stories of many of our lives. And it's happening everywhere and is coordinated and organized in a way that I think we haven't seen before. Libraries have always deal with patrons who community members who have suggestions about the kinds of books we collect and concerns about some of the books on our shelves. And that's a very ordinary part of library work. What's different right now is the highly organized nature of the attacks, uh, which is something that we haven't seen before. So it, it's not your choice. You go to the community to find what books belong in libraries there. Is that, is that pretty clear? Well, so if I'm a librarian, right, I went to school and got a master's degree in library science, and I, my, part of my job is to develop uh, physical collections, other kinds of resources, electronic and digital resources, services, and programming that uh, can connect to the people in my community. And every library is different. And so the library in Brooklyn, New York, is different from the library in Boise, Idaho, where I grew up, but in both places, the library is tightly linked to the needs of the community. I spent most of my life in higher education, and so my libraries always meet the needs of the students and faculty at the university where I'm working. So the professional sort of nature of our work is part of what's being attacked here. Uh, in the case, there's a case in Boundary County, northern Idaho, uh, last year where the library director was 
uh, sort of organized attack on her institution, looking for uh, her to remove 300 titles that uh, the sort of activists in that area had pulled together. And those 300 titles weren't even books that she had on the shelves. She didn't own them at all. So I think there's also a real disconnect between the attacks that are happening and the daily work of the librarian who in many of these cases doesn't even have the book on the Mm -hmm. shelf. Okay. Let's take that that case. For example, when you are alerted to something going on, you mentioned Idaho, your, your home state, does the American library association kind of gather, go over there, counsel and try to uh, moderate the situation? Does, does it work that way, Emily? You know, it doesn't work that way. And I think there's been a lot of confusion about that. The um, part of the talking points of these uh, loud pro-censorship activists and organizers is that the American Library Association sets policies for individual libraries. And we really don't do that. We have uh, professional standards and practices and recommendations. And we assist in cases where our assistance is requested we have an Office of Intellectual Freedom uh, that works very hard on behalf of individual libraries uh, when they when their assistance is requested, doing things like providing talking points, uh, press training, sort of connecting people to the resources that we have inside the organization. Uh, but we don't set policy at individual libraries. I see. That's a little concern. Now, you do have an action toolkit. In fact, I downloaded it. It's pretty uh, significant. You can get it as, if you Google American Library Association. Those of you listening right now, we have a pretty broad audience. They can uh, take part in this action toolkit, which, uh, well, let's let's talk about that. So, so this is, if somebody is in a respective community and they're banning books or censoring books, uh, they can download this kit and fight back. Can you kind of kind of walk us through the the process on that? I'm sure you're getting a lot of feedback on this uh, on this toolkit, right? We sure are. We've got a campaign right now called Unite Against Book Bans that includes uh, tools for people, everything from uh, yard signs that you can print out and have have printed and and put in your yard, uh, proclaiming that you oppose book banning and censorship in your community talking points for talking with the media uh, as a concerned citizen, guidelines for how to show up at a school board meeting, how to show up at a library board meeting, um, lots of tools like that that you can use. Uh, Mostly we're wanting everybody to get involved. This is an issue that has been right on the, for the frontline library worker front and center for the past couple of years. And it's been really, really intense. And what, what we're seeing is that when community members and people who believe in their public library and use it, which is the vast majority of us, right? The, the toolkit also includes statistics about public support for libraries. And it's a minority of people that want books out of the collections. And so we need the majority to show up and stand up. And the strategies, right, for how we're going to win, it's, uh, they're, they're different and they change every day and we never know in advance, right? And so we're asking the toolkit gives lots of ways for people uh, to get involved. We've seen cases in St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana, where community members have banded together to support the library in really, really effective ways. Uh, and we've seen in uh, Lincolnwood, uh, in the Chicago area, uh, people organizing to ensure that the library board members represent people who care about the library and promote the library as a way of keeping people who want to ban books 
from taking over those kinds of positions. And so the toolkit gives lots and lots of information about how you can do that organizing in your own community. Well, you point out it's a small but vocal group, and somehow they get, they get national media attention, some networks more than others. I'm not going to name names. I think you know who I'm talking about here. But uh, the, the pushback here. Now, is that you, – you mentioned some success stories. Is that garnering some media attention, the fact that you know citizens are saying, hey, enough is enough. We don't want this banning anymore. Is that happening? We're seeing some of that. I wish we saw more of that. You know, there's a lot of winning happening across the country. A lot of communities where uh, the the push for censorship is failing. Uh, that Lincolnwood example I just shared with you, it's uh, really inspiring that they hadn't, the, the book banners and censors hadn't taken over the library, but they were, they were able to see that that might be coming and uh, organized really effectively in advance. And it's the kind of um, win that's a little harder to frame and celebrate. And uh, I'm not sure quite why <laughs> it doesn't garner the same clicks as hate does. Uh, but I believe that we, we, the majority, vast majority of Americans agree that children should have access to books. It's uh, for someone who's worked in libraries my whole career, it's been shocking to see people oppose things that it's, hard to imagine anyone being against. I was visiting a library in Rhode Island a few weeks ago and you walk in the door and there's a a shelf there with little tiny plants on it and it's painted and it says, take a plant, leaf a plant. And it's the cutest thing you've ever seen. And it's a community partnership between the branch library and the local Girl Scouts to provide greenery to the community. And you see something like that in the library and you don't understand how anyone could be against it and it doesn't make any sense. And I think um, that's the piece that's the most challenging for me is if we could amplify the stories of good work that libraries are doing every day that you probably know about from going to the library, I know about from going to libraries. Those are the stories that I'd love to see getting more press coverage because that's the real work of uh, America's library workers, connecting Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Well, you got a friend here in America's workforce. We appreciate what you're doing there. This is a really, really tough job. And just in closing, Emily, Emily Drabinsky joining us. She is president of the American Library Association. Your message to those communities that are affected. uh, And as we know, there's some states that are pretty vocal right now. What would that message be, Emily? We're all in this together. There are more of us than there are of them. It's just a matter of getting together and standing strong for what our communities need. And there are lots and lots of ways to do that. Everyone just needs to do something. And we're glad to have all of you in the fight. All right, Emily, please keep in touch with us. Emily Drabinsky, president of the American Library Association. Stay strong and stay safe, okay? Thank you. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, we're going to check in with the Ohio Federation of Teachers and the Insulators. That would be Local 45. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.